The gospel is the good news that Christ died for sinners and rose so they could be forgiven and raised too. But with this emphasis on guilt and innocence, have we forgotten honor and shame? By no means does an honor-shame perspective mean penal substitutionary atonement has to be gotten rid of. In fact, I would argue that there is really no such thing as an honor-shame theory of atonement. What the lenses of honor and shame do is bring a new set of questions or perspectives. And if you read scripture, one of the things that you see very quickly is that we incur shame when we fail to obey God's law. Are we guilty? Yes. So how do we understand penal substitutionary atonement with a view towards the shame and the honor dimensions of that? Chris Flanders, author and missiologist, answers today on the show. But first, a word from ABWE President Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Cochran, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE International, joined again by my good friend, Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator with ABWE as well. And Scott, I am still running off of the fumes of our exciting conversation last week with your compatriot, Bob Bixby, there in the Bay Area talking about vision and just how that drives us. And I'm just grateful that we get to have these engaging guests uh, from one week to the next. I'm excited about our conversation today as well. And I know you are too. Well, I, I am excited. This is something I've been thinking about, particularly as I was running into situations that I didn't know how to deal with or cultural situations that were complicated and living in Asia. And certainly... Um, living out here in the Bay Area, in which the majority of the people in my city are not from America and are coming from an Asian context, especially, um, I'm, I'm recognize you, you just recognize constantly things that just are beyond your experience. And so it's really great to have with us someone who has experience, not just living overseas, but also has done a lot of research and thinking about this uh, topic, particularly, and um, has, uh, has compiled a book as the editor of a book. Uh, so anyway, Dr. Chris Flanders is joining us. He's the Associate Professor of Missions at Abilene Christian University, a longtime missionary to Thailand, and is the editor of a new volume called Honor, Shame, and the Gospel, Reframing Our Message and Ministry uh, that just came out from William, William Carey Publishing. Um, and it has actually a lot of uh, con contributing authors, many of whom are are some of uh, the biggest names in missiology that I'm aware of, at least. And so I'm really excited to have Chris. Welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us and thanks for putting in the work. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement in missions and how you kind of came to this place of being involved in putting together a book like this? Hey, thanks, guys. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I got to say, before I introduce myself, I've been on a few different podcasts and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Best podcast intro music ever. That was, I love that music. That was awesome. Uh, just sitting here listening. 
Alex played that. Yeah. Alex wrote. No, I'm just kidding. No, sorry, I'm sorry. It did that live. So yes, I uh, I uh, my name's Chris Flanders. I teach in uh, the uh, the College Department of Bible Ministry and Missions here at Abilene Christian. I also teach in our graduate school, essentially our seminary that's located here on the campus as well. I've been doing that for about 16 years now. But before that, I had a career in uh, as a missionary, mostly as a church planter in northern Thailand. And uh, spent a total of 11 years there working among the Thai people, which is uh, a part of the reason that this whole area of honor and shame issues became so important to me personally. But I, I came back uh, with some nagging questions that I wanted to try and answer. And some of those I got to indulge in while I was doing my doctorate at Fuller, where I got my PhD in intercultural studies. I wrote a, my dissertation, which is now a book called About Face, which is focusing primarily on face issues in Thai culture. And, uh, and then I've been uh, teaching here since then, but I'm connected to this kind of broad global conversation on honor and shame issues in missions. And it's where I devote a lot of my time and a lot of my energy. And um, I'm really loving it. I think there's a lot to say still, but I'm really pleased at how God's blessed the conversation and how much we've learned in, in the process. So now that you mentioned face issues, I kind of wish that we had spent could spend a whole podcast talking about face and uh, and that whole concept, especially in, in Asian cultures. But I think we're going to kind of deal with some things that 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 certainly relate to that. Um, you, you, you start out in the introduction, which I just thought the introduction was was very interesting and, and helpful to kind of frame the whole question, um, because I. I've been involved in missions and training for a long time. And I know that when people hear about honor, shame, maybe for the first time, some of them maybe, you know, don't, don't like what they're here. They hear others think, okay, this is the magic bolt that solves everything, but inevitably there's misunderstandings even about what the terms mean. And so you, you do take some time to define that. And so I want to spend some time defining it too. Um, especially in these, in missiology yeah. and theology, defining terms, it seems to be everything. So Help us by defining some terms here. What do you mean um, and, and what do you not mean when you when you talk about shame, for instance? Yeah, thanks. And you're right. Defining terms is really critical. In fact, I'll say that in this conversation, one of the muddling or problem areas is that you get different authors defining things differently. And so you're talking over each other, right? You're, you're saying things, mm. but you're actually talking about very different things sometimes or different, different dimensions of something that's maybe complex and has layers. So shame, yeah. Shame is primarily a feeling, although it's also a social experience, right? We can be ashamed, although usually that has a feeling associated with it. You can be shamed by society. You can experience stigma. Those are kinds of societal institutional shame, but shame mostly is the uh, personal experience of failing to measure up, of, of being defective, of being inadequate. And, and uh, mm. typically it can be a very powerful uh, experience, especially in its extreme forms. There are mild forms like embarrassing, right? Embarrassment, you stub your toe, you fall down in front of a group of people that you don't know really well, and you get back up, but you blush, you know, that's a kind of a shame. A type of shame, but then there are much deeper types of shame. Uh, the, the the author Brene Brown specializes in talking about these kind of deep toxic versions of shame that get um, kind of uh, into human identity and prevent human flourishing in all kinds of ways and lead people down really really dark alleys. So that's a kind of shame. Uh, 
but ultimately, shame is 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 the experience of not measuring up, of falling short, of being inadequate. And it seems like when you talk about shame, you you don't see it completely as a negative thing. There's some positive aspects that you brought out when it relates to shame as well. Which when I think of shame, I think of it as completely negative. Like you, you either I was shamed in front of a bunch of people, or I am ashamed of something I did. How could that be positive then? Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that, Chris, because when I think of shame in Scripture, I think of, say, uh, Philippians 3.19, people who glory in their shame. Um, Shame as being something objective and external. They should feel ashamed. If they they don't feel shame at that which is shameful, then they're shameless. And it would actually be bad to be shameless, even though shame we think of as this negative. That's absolutely right. In fact, shameless is kind of a term that's fallen out of usage in maybe contemporary North America. But you're absolutely right. It It is a shameful thing to be without shame because shame has a discretionary power that keeps us mindful of the standards uh, that we'll fail to measure up to if we do such and such, if we act in a certain way. What really got me into thinking more deeply about the positive dimensions of shame, and by positive, I think I need to uh, at least chasten that a little bit. Shame is Mm -hmm. ultimately a negative experience. It's not something that God wants us to live in, nor is it something that God ever wants to do. It's kind of like as a parent discipline. The best world would be when you never had to discipline your kids because they always obeyed you and they always did what was right, right? But there are times when discipline is necessary sure. and in that sense it's even a good thing. Uh and I think that's how I view shame. So if you read Paul's letters for example, and I've got a brand new book uh by Taylor Lau who is a New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Chicago. And the title of the book is Defending Shame, Its Formative Power in Paul's Letters. And he makes hmm. the very clear case. And if you just read Paul, read 1 2 Corinthians, read uh, Galatians, um, Paul is, is fond of saying things like, you all should be ashamed. Right? I say this to your shame, um, is, a, is a statement that Paul uh, repeats on a, several occasions. Or like you noted a second ago, Alex, uh, their glory is in their shame. So this is a negative evaluation about the ways people are not living properly. And Paul is using shame in the case of the Corinthian church. You know, you can see him kind of shaking his head, hand, maybe he was bald like me. So his hand is on his bald forehead and he's just shaking his head. He's saying, y'all should be ashamed. But then he says, but you're not actually you're boasting Mm -hmm. like this is a good thing. You think about the adult, the man living with his um, uh, stepmom or whoever she was, you know, and, and Paul says, y'all are proud. You you're boasting about your open-mindedness. You should be, he says, you should be ashamed and, uh, you should be grieving. And so shame is, is good in how it is used to draw us to awareness of how we failing, we're failing to measure up to God's goals for us, God's glory, God's laws. And, Ultimately, it's something that we want to completely get out of. There is no ultimate uh, state of shame that is a good thing. You don't see shame in the book of Revelation as some happy place where we all end up, Mm. right? But it is uh, a necessary and sometimes helpful strategy, uh, verbal or otherwise, to help people realize what uh, what is not going well in their lives or in their communities. And so in that sense, I call it a a positive. 
Um, but you got to put like a little footnote or asterisk there when, when you say it's positive. Right. I hear you saying it can be something that restrains us from doing things that will bring shame on us. So like the fear of shame can actually yeah. keep us uh, living, which is the next word I want you to define for yeah, us honorably. That's exactly right. So, so you know, here in the West, we use honor all sorts of ways, but um, I think that you're using it and that the missions conversation uses honor in ways that maybe we are not as familiar with in America. Well, like shame, honor is multidimensional, right? Uh, both of these terms are complex. And so you can't really say shame or honor is this one thing, like a telephone or a speaker. It's that. Uh, but it's it's like Shrek, right? If you remember, Shrek's got layers, right? Uh, like an onion. And uh, that's the illustration I always mm-hmm. lose with, use with my students today because they all know Shrek. So uh, <laughs> shame is layered. It's There, is, there are multiple dimensions, as, as is honor. So honor can be all kinds of things. It can be public acclaim, um, reputation. It can be distinction that you enjoy because... Uh, I'm a professor, so people call me Dr. Flanders. That's a form of honor, right? A title address. An honorific um, even. Yeah. <laughs> yes, honor, honorifics, titular yep. honorifics that we use all the time. Mr. President, your honor, sir. Yes, officer, sir. These kinds of verbal addresses we use all the time without really thinking about them, but they are forms of, of giving respect or honor. And we do this normally in Western culture and in, in Asian cultures and other cultures, they do this as well. Um, honor can also be an internal feeling of personal pride. So I did that really great thing and I just feel so good. I'm, I'm proud of my effort. I'm proud of, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this, right? That there is a, there's a false uh, demonic egotistic way of thinking about pride. Right. But then there's also this, you know, I'm proud of my son for how well he behaved when he could have gone a a different direction. So there's an internalized sense of honor or pride that we feel that's subjective and, and is my own possession and, and isn't, you know, given to me by an audience or uh, a title, uh, a school or anything like that. So these are all connected deeply. Really at its core, honor is about a kind of positive approval because somebody's met a certain standard that we deem to be good. And this is why throughout history, honor is a mixed bag because you can have societies that say people with blue hair, uh, blue hair, blue eyes and blonde (laughs) hair, sorry, are honorable. You know, you, you see who I'm referring to here. And, uh, and people who are not that are not honorable. And then all kinds of negative things societally can, can be a result of those. What's honorable is when somebody insults you, you challenge them to a duel and you kill them. That's mm-hmm. honorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, so these, these variations of what is honorable, how do you demonstrate honor, how important is your public honor? These things ebb and flow uh, throughout history and throughout societies, but at their core, they're really all about this positive evaluation of, of, a, of a virtue. We say this is a virtue, and if you attain that virtue, you deserve respect or honor, which is why I, I say in other places and some of my other published work that it's impossible to imagine an honorless society because to do so, you'd have to not have any notion of virtue. And where can you have a society without an idea of what's good? Well, you yeah. can't. And so 
honor is just a necessary component, I argue, um, as Steve Hawthorne does in the first chapter of this book, that honor and our desire for honor are part of God's good creational order and a good desire that God put in us, even though mm-hmm. it can go astray in, in so many ways we can't even catalog. But, uh, but still, honor is something from God. I'm glad we are starting our conversation with definitions because we know that God cares about his glory, right? I mean, that's one of the values even that came out of the Reformation, you know, is, is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And, you know, anyone who's been influenced at all by John Piper, who has had incredible uh, influence in people in the direction of missions, uh, you know, thinking about God as a being who's about his own honor and glory. And that's all over the New Testament. But I, I think that probably now, as compared to, say, 30, 40 years ago, there's a lot more of an awareness of that among serious Bible readers, um, seeing that theme um, underlying, right? And that that's a that's a critical thing, right? It wasn't it Oprah, Oprah Winfrey who famously was making a comment years ago to the effect of, I, I couldn't worship a God who was all about his own glory. Well, that's a shame because that's the only God that there is, right? But who who's... Whose glory is he supposed to be all about, right? (laughs) You know, he's the greatest thing in the universe. Um, It would be unthinkable for him to be devoted to anything lesser. And uh, and yet his glory is is our good and we're worshiping beings. And so for that reason, you can't have a society without these themes and threads and undercurrents of honor and shame. But for those not familiar with kind of this developing and ongoing conversation, and this isn't the first missions podcast episode we've done on honor and shame. We'll link to our other conversation that we had a while back in the show notes. But there is this conversation within missiology about honor and shame as a paradigm or a value system that we can use to analyze other cultures in comparison to, say, a, a guilt innocence cultural paradigm um, or fear power would be one of the other ones, starting with Eugene Nida in the 50s. Um, and then obviously Roland Muller being one of the ones who was most instrumental in kind of bringing those categories to the forefront of missiological thought. Uh, but I want to start and, and and just talk about those premises and those assumptions, because I've found um, that it's kind of easy within missiology to almost smear anything by saying, well, it's Western, right? Oh, well, well what is Western, right? And um, obviously, there's difficulties and challenges in Western culture, but also Western culture became what it is because of the influence of Christendom. Uh, and, and you can make some lines there, um, draw some connections there. So uh, you make the statement towards the beginning in your introduction that the Western legal framework gospel is true. It's nevertheless informed in part by Western values. So, you know, we're, we're talking about these Western values. And I think in this conversation, uh, typically the rhetoric that's used is like, well, this guilt innocence paradigm. And see, that's a Western thing. And we've got to get away from that in order for the gospel to resonate among some of these other cultures. Um, Where that critique really comes to a fork in the road is on the issue of the atonement. What is Christ doing on the cross? And and the the theory of the atonement, to which I would subscribe uh, ardently, would be penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that Christ suffered the wrath of God in the place of of sinners. Um, Now, uh, there's a lot else also happening in the cross. He's also victorious over sin and death, over Satan, Um, He's also starting a new kingdom. There's so much that's happening there. And I think that we can be reductionistic. And maybe, Chris, that's kind of what you're writing against is the reductionism, not so much writing against 
one of those, you know, like penal substitutionary atonement theory. Um, but let, let's talk about that uh, just for a minute. Um, would you say that, um, that that penal substitutionary atonement is what's going on in the cross? Or would you say that it's it's purely something that relates to honor and shame more so than guilt and innocence? Or how do we look at that? Is it uh, are there multiple things happening there? Yeah, thanks. A lot there, right? And 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 I do. <laughs> Just an easy one. <laughs> so it's gonna it's gonna take at least two minutes to work through that before we can move on. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm nobody can see my right my my tongue in my uh, cheek here. Um, <laughs> so you're right. When uh, and we do try and clarify this uh, in the book because after you mentioned the quote in the the, the immediately following sentences and and all other kinds of reductionisms. So whenever Western culture, and when we say Western, with Western perspectives, that's writ large, right? There's so much that would fall under that. What we, what we often mean, and we probably should be clear sometimes in our writing, uh, you're right, we often just gloss Western as, eh, not so great, but forgetting all of the amazing, wonderful things that have come to us through the Western experience. So you're absolutely right on that. Um, reductionisms. Uh, what, what, and this happens everywhere. Uh, in fact, in the pre uh, the pre podcast conversations that we were having, we we could easily talk about the reductionisms that flow out of honor shame conversations or honor shame cultures. And and this is just like what humans do, right? We want to simplify and we we harden things and we we forget their complexities or we forget that there is truth uh, on the other perspective. But you're often right. We label the other sometimes as passe, bad. This is the, this is the right one now. Um, so yeah, so atonement. Um, one of the things that I want to clarify, and I, and I do this often when I get into these conversations is by no means does an honor, shame conversation perspective mean penal substitutionary atonement has has to be gotten rid of. We're, we're past that. Uh, in fact, I, I would argue that there is really no such thing as an honor-shame theory of atonement. Mm. That, that, that doesn't exist. I mean, there are historical theories of atonement, right? We could talk about theosis. We could talk about Anselm. Right. We, could talk, we could talk about um, more modern versions of how what Jesus accomplishes on the cross and how he does that. And, and that's an important conversation. What honor and shame, the, the lenses of honor and shame do is they bring uh, a new set of questions or, or perspectives to each version. And so on uh, penal substitutionary atonement, um, one of the things that penal substitutionary atonement does, since it is a highly legal framework, right, it's pretty much based out of um, especially the English uh, legal reformation as it was formulated, re really articulated there. Um, and, and also out of the Western European uh, Reformation. Um, so the focus is on Western models of legal theory and how those give us a way to understand what happens on the cross, um, which I think is a viable uh, way to look at it. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a multiple theory of atonement guy, personally, because mm -hmm. I can see how I, I have a hard time saying one is the way. Um, I see resonances of multiple ones throughout the New Testament, but but penal substitutionary theory is compelling precisely because of the things that it highlights about what happens. And um, one of the things that uh, 
the honor-shame conversation gets poked at and sometimes just outright accused of is not believing in sin. In other words, yeah, it's shame, and shame is about public opinion, what others think, and not about the law of God. And if you read scripture, one of the things that you see very quickly, whether it's the book of Psalms or Isaiah or Paul, is that we, we, incur, we incur shame when we fail to obey God's law. Right. They're, they're right. related. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are, we, are we guilty? Yes. Uh, and, and so you feel it, shame because of that guilt, right? They're not. Or, or, yeah, both. Yeah. or, or you yeah. feel guilty because of your shame. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that one has the priority. And here's the thing that modern social psychologists tell us is that the same event, the same infraction can produce honor or, I mean, honor, guilt or shame in different people. It kind of depends on how they frame it. If you think about the thing you did as primarily a breaking of law, then you are more likely to experience what we typically call guilt. If you think of the thing you did as either uh, personal, like this, I, I, I disappointed my dad. I failed to live up to his, his rules for me. If you personalize it, then you are more likely to experience what we call shame. I, I didn't measure up to my dad's expectations. I feel shamed. I feel ashamed that I didn't do what was right or, or worse, that my actions brought a negative, maybe even shame on my family. And of course, this resonates throughout scripture, right? Even, you know, Israel uh, acting in ways that even among the Gentiles, right? God's name is shamed. It's, it's, it's disparaged because of the way that you've acted. So I, I think that the discussion uh, is one more of how do we understand penal substitutionary atonement with uh, a, a view towards the shame dimensions, and the honor dimensions of that. I, I, I really don't think, uh, I don't think it's a helpful way to view it. And I actually don't think it's required to see it as any kind of zero sum game. It's like, okay, you're either yeah. for penal substitutionary atonement, uh, or you're for honor shame stuff. Right. Um, and, and I think that, um, that because honor shame in my mind doesn't really represent a paradigm. Some people talk about it as a paradigm. I, I always push back against that. I really see it as a, a set of lenses to view complex realities like law, gospel, uh, God, salvation. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a lens that we in the West have either um, underappreciated or in some cases have kind of forgotten. And what this conversation is, from, in my mind, is not one paradigm replacing an older paradigm but retrieving important scriptural truths to remind us that uh, there is another dimension to be added to the whole conversation. I think that's really helpful. And I would agree that there, obviously there's, if you want to call them honor, shame elements that are uh, undeniably a part of the gospel to the point where if you're forgetting them, you do have uh, less than a whole gospel, right? So Christ is not just uh, dying for sinners. He, he rises and he's exalted to the right hand of the father. Right? I mean, that that is in the apostolic proclamation. Well, so Christ is brought into this position of shame and then is raised back to honor. Right. So there's 
there's themes, there's elements there that you absolutely can't. And, and um, we are glorified out. like Christ was glorified. And we're glorified with him. Absolutely. And you see in Genesis, all of the not just the uh, the punitive effects of sin, but the inward, you know, psychological and social uh, social realities of that sin. Right. You know, Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. I mean, it's it's all over the place there. And absolutely, there are ways of presenting the gospel that downplay those things, um, not to bash something like four spiritual laws. But, you know, I, I think a lot of us are um, maybe tired of a, a version of evangelism that really predominated America in the last century that had almost exclusively to do with, hey, where are you going to go when you die? And then leaving out all of the other dimensions of the gospel, the kingdom of Jesus, God's glory, all those sorts of things. But let me let me just if we if we agree on all of that, because it sounds like we have a lot of common ground there, I just want to um, poke a little bit. You mentioned that penal substitutionary atonement um, is relying on this, you know, kind of English um, view of law, uh, basically English common law, those sorts of things that, you know, this um, legal tradition. You know, I think going back in history, though, um, King Alfred is basically getting, you know, his legal ideas from Deuteronomy. Right. And the the whole British common law system that we, whether we realize it or not, take for granted in North America and, and obviously in, in uh, the UK um, as that tradition really does come out of an understanding of, of biblical law originally. And yes, there's other influences at play there, um, but it's it's not a Greco-Roman thing primarily. And the reason I, I ask that is because in the Old Testament, uh, we have the Day of Atonement. We have uh, guilt offerings, um, not shame offerings, right? There are, there are guilt offerings. There's the laying of hands on the sacrificial animal to impute the guilt, you know, symbolically, ceremonially to that animal. And you have the same themes of guilt and innocence coming out um, predominantly uh, throughout the Gospels and uh, the Book of Acts. So, Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins are being preached, right? Not restoration to honor, um, forgiveness of sins. Again, I'm not saying those things are mutually exclusive, but the framing is around forgiveness of sins too. So, you know, are we, are we guilty of downplaying guilt and innocence? Because, and the reason for this is because I would contend that the reason we got here and our culture tends to emphasize guilt and innocence is because I think there's a natural emphasis on guilt and innocence in Paul in, in Romans one through three throughout the new Testament. Right. So um, are we also acknowledging those realities while at the same time saying, yes, and there's these honor and shame elements at play too, that we can draw out again. Uh, wow. You, you set uh, an amazing table. <laughs> I know I, I've got softball <laughs> questions for you, my friend. <laughs> this is, you know, somebody told me the other day, like, I love your show, but it's not light listening. It's not yeah. easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, I'm just hoping that the next Scott can give me like this laser tight question. Uh, cause, cause I, I hear so much and everything that you asked Alex was, is, is really good and, and important. Um, I don't, I don't know enough about Alfred and, and the, and the whole history of that. I would, I would suspect that you're right. I would suspect that in fact, that much of the inspiration was, was scriptural and, and no doubt. Um, as was a lot of what happened throughout, you know, uh, 1500 years of European experience. Um, so there, there's, there's so much here, but so I go back to the idea of forgiveness of sins. Um, does forgiveness of sins 
equal guilt? And and here's where I would say, well, no, no, it does equal guilt, but it it doesn't equal guilt uh, without remainder. There, in other words, one can. Uh, it depends on how one thinks of sin. First of all, uh, Romans three twenty three. You know, a very important scripture in the Romans. The whole we, we talked about crew and uh, the four spiritual laws. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But um, all have sinned, and then what's Paul's consequence? We've fallen short of God's honor, which is a shame statement. So I'm going to take liberty here and translate Paul in vernacular. We've all sinned, and we live in shame, not not living up to God's honor. We've fallen short. He doesn't say shame, but the term he does use, the false short, uh, is a, a shame-laden phrase in Greek. It indicates not measuring up. Uh, now, would Paul say that we're guilty? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and this, again, is where the conversation sometimes takes a, a turn to the south, you know, where people start talking to over each other. Yeah. Be- because guilt is, like honor, um, multidimensional. There are really two, at least two primary ways you can think about guilt. One is culpable. Did you do it or not? Do you stand in a state of having done wrong? And so one, sometimes we think about guilt or guiltiness as culpability. Are, are you culpable? Did you do it? And then there's another dimension of guilt that we all know. So like you can be guilty, but not feel guilty, right? We, we are aware of that. There's, I mean, you just look around, right? Tons of people everywhere who break laws, who break God's laws and don't feel guilty. They don't feel twinge of conscience, Um, So there's the experience or internal feelings of guilt and guiltiness. And then there's a kind of a legal stand. We are culpable. Um, And when we talk about guilt, it's probably always helpful for us to make sure that we're distinguishing between those things. Because a lot of what the honor-shame conversation uh, is poking at is that second dimension of guilt, that experience of uh, you know, what we would call the, 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 the depths of, of the guilt experience, the heaviness of guilt. What we do know from um, Christian researchers as well as secular researchers is that, um, that we can feel shame when we break laws, when we are guilty, when we are culpable, we can feel shame. Uh, this is, of course, why um, Paul makes, makes great it uh, takes great effort to communicate to his readership uh, readers in like the book of Romans, right? Romans 10, 11, a well-known verse where Paul kind of concludes, he says, just as scripture says that anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, Paul, Paul really does spend a lot of time talking about shame, uh, not measuring up to God's honor but God not leaving them in, in that state of shame, but rather, as, as, as you said a second ago, Scott, we, we are actually filled with honor, or uh, we're being transformed from one degree of honor or glory to mm-hmm. another, right? Which is the work of the Spirit. And that's a part of salvation, as growing in towards the glory of God. Not that we will ultimately become God, but that we will become glorious, filled with glory and honor like God, in God-like ways. Um, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, you're right. Uh, the Day of Atonement, and there's a lot here. I'm not a biblical scholar, so I rely a lot on other biblical scholars' works. But I do know that the terms that the Hebrew terms that we translate, that often get translated as, for example, guilt offering, 
are, are about culpability and less about that experience of guilt. Um, and I don't know if those are the best English translations or not, but you do know that as you read through you know, Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Isaiah, where things like this are talked about, that over and over again, shame language is brought uh, to describe the experience of God's people when they fail God mm. and when they don't do what's right. Yeah. Uh, when, and, and, um, and also that a state of rest, being set right with God is an honorable thing and therefore is a desirable state in part because it means that God is smiling mm. on you with, with a view of mm. honor, a, a view of joy, right? Uh, and when God is pleased with you, and that's another part of this conversation that I always want to get to as quickly as possible. When many people associate honor with just public opinion, right? Reputation. And so they view it as like something less valuable than something, some other resource, biblical resource, state of salvation, state of justification. Um, but for God to look at us with pleasure yeah. and to speak words of affirmation is the ultimate honor, right? Yeah. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a little bit. So look what you get now. And that's just the most gloriously honorable, I mean, statement. And I, I literally think about my life in terms of I want that. I want God's honor mm -hmm. because I know God isn't wrong when he makes honor decisions. And two, that's the ultimate. That's what I want to be. And by the way, that's so, one thing that I really appreciated about the book is that you drew out right from the beginning that to possess true honor from God as someone who's in Christ uh, also might mean you're martyred and dishonored by the world, which I, I love that that was immediately in there that like true Absolutely. honor is not going to look honorable from a human fleshly social yeah. standpoint. I really appreciated that. Chris, I've got I've got a follow up question for you. I know there's been a lot of deep ones. Um, sure. So one one more. Yep. OK, make it a softball one. Chris, Please. what is your. <laughs> What is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Okay, now we're talking. Rocky Road. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like I owed you that. I, I, I did. You owed me that. So. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, now we can, yeah, now we can yeah. back to the tough stuff. And I was thinking, Alex. I was I was thinking as you were talking about the Old Testament and some of those things that were going on there with the guilt. There's also an, definitely an uh, aspect of honor as well, in the sense that. What is the consequence for not doing these things is being put out. It's being on the outside, even in the temple rituals, there is a clear sense of like only, only those who God deems worthy can enter certain places. And even their worthiness is, is, is determined not because of their own self, you know, like they can't earn that on their own. I, I just think that sometimes we see what, what we are, what we easily see and the things that we see less easily have to be pointed out to us because we don't tend to think of it. And even, even in Ephesians, Paul says that, that we were aliens and strangers. Um, and he uses that as a, as a negative that we, but now that, but now we're members of the household of God. And uh, as a, as an example of, I think what the gospel, what gospel does aliens and strangers, even in our culture, that's one of the big insults that I know that sometimes my Asian friends feel here. And obviously we're dealing in a cultural moment with that as well, but but were they to be called a foreigner by someone when you have generations living in America is a very like dishonoring thing to say. Um, to be part of the family, be a citizen, means something. So I, I don't know. Maybe Chris, you want to handle. You know, you want to say something. Otherwise, we're close to a break. You're absolutely right. Um, 
you know, a lot of my thinking on this was, was shaped uh, on the anvil of working in Thailand. And, and Thailand is a constitutional monarchy. They've recently had a change in kings, and there's a lot of controversy over all that. Uh, to say if, if there are any Thai listeners, I'm just going to completely step over that one. But, um, but the king who was uh, in, in power, in, uh, the king while I was there all my years, uh, you know, was looked up to with a, a reverence that I, I, can't, I can't compare to anything else I've ever experienced in my life at any level, politically or socially. It's, it was really remarkable how much the Thai people not only honored him, revered him, loved him, recognized him. Uh, and so if somebody were to be a part of the royal family, that would be unfathomable honor and distinction, just crazy, no way, or marry into the royal family. And, and, and so when we look at texts like this, right, that now we're, we're members of the household of God, not just uh, an earthly monarch, but the eternal king, citizens of this real king, the king of all kings. And what we often do, and what I did as an American, because, hey, this whole thing started with Let's get rid of the royal thing, right? right no Let's kings here. Yeah. No kings here. Um, is, is I fail to appreciate that honor dynamic that you just noted, and that is exile, stranger. How sh- there's stigma. Oh, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I don't belong to anyone anywhere. And then all of a sudden, not only do you go from a state of shame and stigma to nice honor, decent honor, but eternally unsurpassable honor of being a member of God's family. Uh, Biblical scholar um, David De Silva, who's written extensively on this, wrote a great commentary on the book of Hebrews. And in it, he talks about the rhetoric of the the author and essentially says that the entire book of Hebrews is trying to reshape the, uh, the, the readers, the recipients, whoever they were, wherever they were, of um, buying back into the right honor code not the one that society is pushing on them because apparently the idea is that, you know, they're, they're, they're falling back. They're returning to their old ways primarily because society is heaping shame on them. And what the author does is draws the reader's attention to Jesus who for the cross, right? Uh, the, The joy set before him endured the shame of the cross. And then at the end, he appeals for the people to go outside Jesus outside the camp and, and bear shame with him. And you're right. Um, a lot of the New Testament is really uh, biblical authors working with uh, believers to redefine the shame and honor codes that they've inherited from their dominant culture in into more Christian Jesus-like versions. Mm. Well, you know, I think we always need to be holding up a mirror, and I, I need to be holding up a mirror. You know, what what are my blind spots? And I. I do think that for for those of us, I'll just speak for myself, for people that are conservative, theologically reformed, um, we can forget the relational aspects of the gospel. And what what do we leave out? We, we go justification. I'm talking about the, the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, justification, mm-hmm. sanctification, glorification. Well, we leave out adoption. You know, mm. God doesn't just pardon you. He adopts you into that <laughs> royal family. Uh, and it's it's awful that we leave that out as an adoptive father. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my, my oldest son is adopted. Our, our listeners have heard me talk about that before. It's a beautiful dynamic there. And so there's a lot more we need to get into, 
but I also need to let Scott ask more questions. And I really want to hear um, if Chris likes dogs or cats more. And also if he prefers vanilla or chocolate, um, baseball or football. We'll talk about all of that after this short break. Hi, I'm Scott Dunford, and I'd like to share with you about a new nonprofit ministry established to help churches, Christian schools, and other ministries protect children and prevent abuse. Rich Hamar from Church Law and Tax states that the number one reason that drives churches to court is child sexual abuse. I can't think of anything more devastating to these lives, their families, and our witness before a watching world than sexual abuse that takes place in ministry. The traumatic impact often leaves the vulnerable not wanting anything to do with God or his people. Our efforts toward evangelism, discipleship, and spiritual formation are not only neutralized, but shattered. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention was formed to help ministry leaders understand the complexities of child protection and abuse prevention. They are establishing standards and an accreditation program that will help verify that appropriate measures are in place at your church or ministry. Learn more about them. Find a helpful and free assessment tool to help you see how you measure up in this area. Go to abuseprevention.org and click on the link for this resource assessment. Evangelical Council for Abuse Prevention. And this June, attend the National Conference. Go to abuseprevention.org and register with ABWE21 as the promo code to receive 20% off your ticket. That's promo code ABWE21 to receive 20% off. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. I am here with Mark Dever, senior pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist and president of Nine Marks. When you go to a culture that's a different language than yours, you're ending up in a kind of majority language that's been reached. And there are other people still more hidden, and it's those people who are often almost entirely unreached, and they take more cross-cultural effort. Is there a way we can better train people to have more realistic expectations of what life is like in the kind of two steps away from my culture? and be able to sustain family life with its normal difficulties there so that there can be a long years and even decades long witness in that culture. And it seems like Radius is set up to provide that training. Radius is about reaching unreached people groups. Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org. We're back with Chris Flanders, uh, general editor for Honor, Shame, and the Gospel, and we're discussing honor and shame. Uh, we spent the first half talking about the theological, biblical dimensions of that. Uh, the whole second half of the book is really devoted to the missiological uh, implications of that. Now, full disclosure, I've only read the first half, so I can't comment on on you know how some of the application lands. But uh, Chris, chocolate or vanilla? Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with chocolate. Okay, all right. See, more common ground. Yeah, now, yeah. I mean, Raggy Red's got some mush, uh, marshmallow, which is kind of vanilla-ish, but definitely chocolate. Well, we're recording this the morning after St. Patrick's Day. My wife made homemade shamrock shakes last night, so I will say oh, nice. vanilla has its uses. But anyway, um, sure, sure. Scott really wants to take this conversation deeper. I know. <laughs> I do. And I, I, I really appreciate all your extra time. I feel like we could probably uh, talk about this for days, especially since, um, you know, we've got an expert and we can ask all of our questions and you're doing such a great job of answering them. So here, here's a question that I, I, I think might be helpful for, for our listeners. So, you know, in, in Tom Steffen's chapter, and some of our listeners are familiar with him from a lot of things he's done, even with ABWE in the past, but um, he talks about how the Bible shows all sorts of value systems and you talk about it as well in your introduction. 
not just honor and shame or guilt, innocence, which are ones we've been talking about a lot today, but he, he brings out a lot of other, you know, possible value systems or lenses, cultural lenses, as, as you were talking about. So here's my question for you as for, for missionaries that are listening or even pastors, how do we avoid being driven by our perspective, you know, our cultural thing, which I, I realize that's what the book is kind of addressing or even, um, as we're learning these new tools, you know, it's easy to like, Hey, yeah. I got a hammer. Now everything's a nail. You know that, you know, once, once you get a screwdriver, everything turns into a screw. How do we avoid, you know, even letting our lack of fully understanding this and going deep into this, um, cause us to see everything is honor shame or everything is guilt or innocence. How do we strive to, to move through these lenses and, and really try to be very biblical on how we're doing it. Like how, how do you, how do you counsel us to say, okay, here's how you be biblical despite the fact that you've got a cultural lens and that the new things, the new tools you're learning may be misused at times. Yeah. Great question. <clears throat> well, I'd counsel you the same way I counsel myself, I think. And that is it has to start with a really robust and deep humility that recognizes, I mean, as I love to tell my students, I'm wrong a lot. And the reason that I'm telling you what I'm telling you now today is because I realized that what I was telling people 15 or 20 years ago was wrong. I've changed my mind. I've grown. Uh, and so, you know, as a 23-year-old, fresh out of seminary, I was, I was probably only wrong on like one thing. And, you know... <laughs> Um, but now I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more aware of, of how I've changed my mind. And what that means is when you change your mind, essentially you said I was wrong. I, I, now I, I confess that I was wrong. Mm. So it, I think it has to start there. Um, and, uh, you know, my experience in Thailand led me, uh, into ministry situations where I was realizing that the ways that I was presenting things, the frameworks that I was using, even the terminology uh, was understandable, but oftentimes not as compelling. And that really drove, so ministry effectiveness really drove me at one level to say, is there a different way to talk about this? Um, a moment ago, we referenced the four spiritual laws. I've got a friend who works with crew and they've come out now, as you probably know, with an honor shame uh, approach uh, to essentially a new version of the four spiritual laws and they've translated it into multiple languages and you can get it on their uh, website. Uh, um, but uh, recognizing that gospel presentations can err or lean too much into one side of things to where it, uh, it obscures the things that also exist in scripture. Uh, and, and sometimes mm -hmm. they do it because we believe this is the other part of the humility thing uh, my ideas about scripture equals scripture. <laughs> and that's something that I, that I have to, right. you know, it's, it's never, this is not a statement <laughs> that we don't, there is no objective truth or that we do not know things. It is to say that our knowing often is impacted by my own perspective, my own culture, and sadly my own sin, right? I just don't like that guy. And the way he said things, therefore, yeah, I'm not so sure I like that idea. It must be wrong. Uh, or he's, he's the St. Louis Cardinals fan. I'm a Cubs fan. So he, there's no way anything he says can be right. You know, that kind of human hubris, pride, ego thing slips in there. And the next thing you know, we're unable to see things. And, and so I think that's where it's got to start. The second thing I would say is if you can spend time with believers of different nationalities or ethnicities, 
listen to them, uh, talk to them. Uh, that's, of course, where a lot of this happened for me. Living in another culture for 11 years, learning another language will absolutely do it. Most of us don't have the time to just go ahead and learn another language. Let's just go learn Mandarin because we want to see the gospel a little bit different. Um, and, and I know that's not realistic, but... Um, yeah, there you go. Gesundheit. <laughs> Gesundheit, yeah. De nada. Um, <laughs> <Por qué? laughs> I, I also think here's what I tell my students to do read different translations of the Bible uh, because I always think I mean I've got my favorites because partly because I just got used to them reading when I was a younger believer but um, and uh, at the risk of stepping on toes or, or going into some pl a place where you know some people will go you know read paraphrases, read the message, read uh, Phillips, read uh, different, not as absolute truth, but see the different nuances that people bring to different texts, you know, Romans, Galatians, Matthew, whichever. And, um, you know, so much of what we talk about in the book, guys, and, and so much of what this whole conversation is about is also bringing our honor, shame lenses back to scripture. Because I think we would all agree that, it, that you know, that's, that's the foundation. Uh, maybe God's the foundation, and then our understanding of God is largely determined by our reading of Scripture. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, so much of the language of the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible is grounded in this worldview where honor and shame take on profoundly different and maybe more important uh, manifestations than they do in my everyday experience. And so when I read the Gospels, when I, and in certain terms have been, I'll just say, have been sanitized by centuries of English translation. And, sure. and uh, in our graduate chapel, uh, I'm in the seminary here in graduate chapel uh, yesterday, um, uh, the text was the, uh, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. We know that parable well. Um, the older translations say, use this weird word, because of her importunity, right? Mm -hmm. She, the judge finally gave in, uh, or sh uh, others, sh it's shamelessness. Uh, but all the translations that we read, and we read three different translations that are said because he was irritated with her. So, so we kind of translate that out because we don't say importunity or shamelessness. Mm. It's not our direct experience. So because she so profoundly irritated the judge, one of the translations, he said, okay, I'll give you justice. Well, huh. Fine. That's not a bad rendering, but it, what it does is it loses that shame edge. She was shameless. And then the question is, well, so what did that mean? She didn't pay attention to the honor codes that would have dictated a, a, a woman, widow, on her own, just letting this judge have it over and day in and day out. You know, you get this picture of somebody who does not care at all what anyone else thinks she's going for justice until she gets it. And the judge finally goes, okay, you got it, woman. Well, mm. so that, that translational decision, um, even the word honor, I mean, glory, I'm sorry. You know, I, I love the, the C.S. Lewis uh, quip in The Way to Glory. You may have read that. Um, mm -hmm. And he talks about the fact that if you ask the average church member what, what glory is, they pretty much have no idea except maybe it's some sort of divine like light bulb thing you know mm. this this radiance this effulgence um and then of course you run into the the oprah winfrey oprah winfrey dilemma of well how can you if if you know god is concerned with his own glory which is just reputation then how can you worship a god who just is 
you know, is who's got a personality defect, right? That just has to just focus on his own. Right. Is he a megalomaniac? Yeah, right, right. right, right. So, um, but, but the, the translation glory, um, and there are, there are a semantic domain of terms in Greek, honor, glory, respect. Um, but often these important dimensions get, get nudged to the side a little bit. One, because most of us really don't know what a glory is. I mean, I guess God's glorious. That means he shines. You know, uh, maybe thinking about the experience with Israel when God passes by and the people can't look and they scream for it to stop. But, um, but really, glory is really about honor, right? It's, it's about this recognition of excellence and, and awesome. The, the best translation I tell my students is to translate it as awesome or awesomeness. Uh, we fall in sort of God's awesomeness. And uh, I know that that doesn't even fully capture it, but it gets it a little bit better than glory because I ask my students, what does I do this? What does glory mean? And they scratch their heads and go, well, you know, like, um, like glory, it's glory. Um, so there's a translational issue and the whole conversation is aimed at helping us rediscover maybe a, a layer of this that we've lost in some of our translations. And anybody who's done Bible translation runs up against this immediately. For example, I was involved as an editorial consultant with the Thai Easy to Read Project. And there's so many honor and shame laden uh, terms in the New Testament that you have to make these hard decisions in, in another language, how to render them. Um, and uh, it really brings out uh, into full view how important these ideas are. So it's not about, again, getting rid of guilt. Let's, you know, passe, that's old Western European stuff. Uh, but rather, let's make sure that we bring back the appropriate uh, sense of honor and shame that maybe has been either ignored at a level or maybe in some of us, maybe even completely forgotten. And that that it's really important. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is the reason that we struggle to evangelize a postmodern culture. Why yeah. should I care that I've broken God's law? Well, who is God? Who are you in relation to God? Yeah. Uh, what is his law? It's not an arbitrary s- set of standards outside of himself. It's the reflection of his glory. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that that our sin is such an offense in his sight. And, um, you know, this is where I think this conversation, Chris, is so helpful. And this is a longer episode than we typically do. I'm grateful for it because I think we need the time and space to flesh these things out. The critique often comes from honor, shame voices, you know, that we're bringing in these systematic theological categories that are foreign to the text of scripture. We're imposing them in, right? Things like the, uh, the guilt, you know, innocence um, set of lenses or penal substitution. Well, we're, we're uh, imposing these categories um, from the outside that, that critique comes. And one of the pushbacks that I've had to that critique is, well, you know, yes, sometimes we uh, as missionaries carrying this message, answer questions that a culture isn't yet asking, right? How can I be forgiven of my sins? Well, that this, this culture you're working with might not even know that there's only one true God yet, right? So let's start there. So there, it is true. We have to start at times with the questions that our context is asking and not just bring our own questions in. However, it's also true, and this is what I feel that we miss oftentimes in missiological circles, Scripture gives us the right questions to be asking. So 
being saturated in the meta narrative of scripture gets you to a point where you're no longer asking, hey, is it okay for me to have two wives, right? Like that's, that's where you start maybe, you know, if, if you're coming from a non-Christian context somewhere in the world. Um, but it gets you to the point where you're asking questions that the scriptural text is driving you to ask questions like, how can I be justified? Am I justified by faith or am I justified by works? Right. Those aren't questions that Luther's just asking 1500 years later. Those are questions that Paul is asking uh, as a Jew <laughs> saturated in in that cultural milieu. And, and so there is this temptation, as Scott mentioned, you know, whenever you have a new hammer, everything looks like a nail. Oh, honor, shame. Cool. Let me you know, let me let me just do that everywhere. Um, so here's the question. What's your favorite flavor of, of no, just kidding. <laughs> Here, here's the question underlying all of that. Um, how does all this new research on these value systems, whether it's honor, shame, uh, whether it's fear, power, whether it's um, purity, pollution, some of the other, you know, sort of uh, sets of cultural value systems um, that missiologists are working with. How does that explain gospel fruit in cultures, the success of missions before? any of this research. Because again, I think we can convince ourselves, wow, this is so good. No one ever did missions before we knew all of this. And, and yet there, were, there was a fruitful uh, modern missions movement. And of course, missions throughout the last 2000 years uh, before there ever was a Roland Mueller. You know what I mean? Um, chocolate is the answer to that question. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. In close, uh, <laughs> see you next week on the show. Absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right. And that, that hubris is really, uh, it, it is a common normal, unfortunately, human characteristic to assume that everybody for us, before us was either not that smart or pretty much completely wrong, but we've got it now. Um, and that any new tool, any new perspective kind of operates that way. And I suppose in some sense, that's just natural and then it gets tried out massively, and eventually the dust settles. And if it's a valuable, useful framework, then it'll kind of come back to a place where then there's a balanced and useful uh, way of, of 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 utilizing it. I, I think that um, none of the really um, none of my close friends who are working on this along with me, people like Werner Mishka, people like Jackson Wu, people like Jason Georges, these are names that some people may know. None of those folks, uh, including myself, are saying anything like, hey, this is it. Finally, we've got this figured out, or this is the silver bullet. If you just do this, everything is going to be good. And boy, what a shame. Those poor people who were in Korea back in the, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, they really didn't know what they were talking about. No. I think that would be a sad kind of application. Sure, yeah. I think what... What I would say about your question is, uh, I mean, a couple of things. One, um, sometimes uh, our ministry results because because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was a part of uh, getting to plant five new communities, five churches. And every time we planted a new church, it was like, wow, th uh, that was all God because, boy, did we mess hmm. that up. You know, we, it's like, holy cow. Um, how did that, how is that thing even hanging out? You know, it's just, um, God, the spirit, amazing how God, um, meets us in our, in our weakness and still does great things. Uh, so I would say God is always doing that. And our message is probably even in my best is, is inadequate. And I'm probably missing things all the time. God still 
uh, is gracious and his spirit is still at work. Um, two, what we are finding in, in this chapter, actually, in the, in the book, there's a chapter by Jason Georges who looks, looks at historical figures like Jonathan Edwards, who most of us do not think at all uh, uh, about when we think of honor-shame conversations, or C.S. Lewis, um, and, and asks the question, what were they saying about these issues? And what we're finding is that this is a kind of a bias, or an, what you call an anti-bias in Western theology, that, that uh, so even rereading Luther, for example, seeing the honor-shame dynamics that are, are part and parcel of Luther's theology, and they're strong. Mm. Um, it, they're, they're, they're not absent. Uh, they're right there with, with much of the other thing, the stuff that he talks about. Um, uh, Aquinas, you know, the famous uh, theologian Thomas Aquinas, and how much he says, we think of him as one of the first, you know, kind of mo- Western theologians leading this eventual kind of modern Western um, theological enterprise. And yet Thomas Aquinas is constantly, because he's reading scripture, and that's what these guys did, right? Um, they, they were reading the Bible, and they went, huh, whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. Okay. Uh, and so they would uh, articulate things in those terms or bring that into the discussion. And so I would say that some of those people, you know, you think of um, a Hudson Taylor, you think of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, any great missionary who has gone and done work before us today, which is a lot of missionaries. And, um, and you find that uh, actually when they talked, maybe in their translation, uh, they were actually highlighting important honor shame dynamics, and, mm. we, and we just didn't know it. Uh, one, because I don't speak Chinese, mm. or I don't speak Igbo or uh, Arabic, um, and so uh, maybe, in fact, there was more going on there than we realized. But we're not privy to that because because we don't. I don't read Hudson Taylor sermons in Chinese, so um, so possibly there's that. Um, and the other thing is that the power of the gospel itself even if it doesn't emphasize these things, it is still there. And you all know that, right? I, I recall one of the pivotal moments where this hit me so hard. I saw the Holy Spirit at, at work in such a powerful way um, was when I had made a conscious effort to start sharing the good news in a much stronger, more focused honor shame approach, specifically using uh, the parable of the father and their two sons in Luke 15, right? We all know that story, the parable, the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son, and it's got strong honor shame overtones. Um, the son, fit, you know, dishonoring the father in his request, and then leaving because of his shame and the terrible stigma that surely he brought upon the whole family, and his ultimate realization and uh, feelings of shame, even as he comes back, and then the father's overwhelming, ex- exorbitant, exa- uh, extravagant love that rehonors him, right? Gives him all these signs of honor back in inclusion. All right. So I remember when I was sitting with a, a, a guy I had just recently met whose wife actually invited us to share with him. She wasn't a believer, but we've been sharing with her a long time. And she literally said, you know who needs this? My husband needs this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, so do you. But OK, we'll take the invitation. <laughs> and so we went to her yeah. home and I was sharing with him. He was actually half drunk and he was watching the British Premier League on TV. It was pretty tough competition. Always helpful. Oh, wow. It. Tough. And I start telling this story. And he had actually had a background where he had had a bad dad. Uh, she, his wife ch- chimed in. Yeah, that's just like his dad. He was abusive and 
he was a terrible, you know, and I said, well, you know, so the, so life in the world is kind of like a father who had two sons. And I start telling the story, but I really, really emphasize these honor shame dynamics. And this guy whose name is Wacharin um, starts tuning in and he starts listening. And when I got done telling that parable, that story, and I contemporized it a little bit, I said, Rin, what's a Rin? I said, um, what do you think? And he said, I've never heard anything like that. Why would a father do that? That's so amazing. So then I, I shared, well, this is exactly what Jesus tells us God's like with us. And he invited us back. Uh, he eventually became a believer, accepted the Lord, and became one of my best friends and a leader in our church. But it was that strong mm. sense of, you know, I feel like I've shamed and let everybody down too, and and then that parable was immediate. That that parable was immediately able to help him understand his state in relation to God. Now, did we bring in the law of God, God's you know uh, moral expectations? Absolutely. But for him, for Wacharin, uh, it was wow. I, and then this moment of shame came over him as he realized how profoundly guilty he was before God. And he repented and he accepted the Lord and he was baptized and he became a leader. And a lot of it had to do with me being able to articulate this in a different way. Um, and I think that that's what we're all wanting. Mm. Uh, and so those who overemphasize honor shame need to be careful that they bring in law, gospel justification also. Those who overemphasize maybe a Western approach in a certain way, maybe the way that they articulate it, need to, to be aware of honor-shame dynamics that they want to bring into that conversation so that there's, there's real balance there. So the book is about is called is called Honor, Shame in the Gospel, Reframing Our Message in Ministry. You can also uh, check out uh, Chris's other book about face, rethinking face for the 21st century missions. That's something I want to check out even more now after talking. Uh, how else can people find out about you? Where else are you writing? How could they get in touch with you? Well, I, th I would recommend anybody who wants to get deeper into this conversation, uh, go to honorshame.com, which is not my website, but is the website of my friend Jason Georges and is a, is a place where the Honor Shame Network, I'm a part of the leadership team of the Honor Shame Network. We use that website as kind of a clearinghouse for different resources. Uh, subscribe to the free e-newsletter and then just ransack it for resources. There are videos, there are written resources, there are blog posts that talk about this uh, from so many different angles in so many different places around the world. Just excellent resources that are out there. I would say that's the single best thing that people can do. And, uh, and there are a couple of other good books out there that people can grab. Well, and, and Chris, maybe we'll have to do this again once I've finally uh, officially finished reading the second half of the book. But I do appreciate your closing comment there. The power of the gospel is there no matter how uh, intelligently or contextualized or not contextualized we present it. Right. And there is the foolishness of the gospel is its very power. You know, the, the whole idea of, of Christ uh, penally atoning um, and taking shame you know, to honor and forgive sinners and bring them into right relationship with this father who is a judge, right? These things go together. Um, that's folly. That's never going to sound um, cool in, in any culture, whether it's you know, Asian or Western or, or what have you. And yet the power of the gospel is there and we can contextualize it, but it's the power of the spirit working. And so definitely a 
book worth reading and engaging and thinking critically about. And really appreciate your scholarship, Chris, and your uh, extra time with us today on the show. If you have any questions, email alex at missionspodcast.com. Let us know your thoughts or any suggestions for future episodes or people that we should interview. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. And before you leave, make sure you leave us a positive rating and a five-star review that helps get this content in front of others who will be blessed by it. Until next week, thank you for listening to the Missions Podcast.